BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As we've highlighted hundreds of times on this podcast, there is a lot more to meteorology than what you see on TV. And meteorologists can work in insurance. They can work for NASA. They can work for airlines, just to name a few. But one of the most important and dangerous jobs that is in the field of meteorology is that of a hurricane hunter. These brave men and women fly into the eye of hurricanes multiple times a day in order to bring back data that can help save lives. I have two of these men with me today, Richard Henning and Kevin Doremus. We can get an in-depth look at the life of a hurricane hunter through their eyes. Fellas, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Shepard. I, I, I yeah, I, I, this is this is fascinating. I think you're one of the more visible aspects of the hurricane uh, data collection process. I, I, I know that the weather world knows who you are, but I think many people that are not in the weather community know about the hurricane hunters as well. First of all, and I'm, I'm going to start with uh, Kevin on this one because I actually know Rich. We actually are fellow classmates from Florida State University as undergraduate and graduate students, mainly mainly as graduate students. So I want to come to him last. I want to give the honors of the first speaking to Kevin. I always ask every Weather Geeks guest this, and I'm going to ask you too, Rich, so get ready. How, how did you get into weather? Was it a children's experience, some storm in the past? Uh, I ask this to every Weather Geeks guest, so Kevin, you first. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, find, I feel very fortunate to have a job that I have, uh, and I get to do what I do every day uh, and love going to work. Uh, it's a really awesome job, and uh, I feel very fortunate to, to be working with an incredible team. Uh, I, <clears throat> I have kind of an interesting path into kind of the weather side of the things. I kind of started off uh, as a kid, always into the sciences. Uh, I'm very proud of my uh, middle school um, summer camp. I was the number one uh, bug specimen collector on my summer camp, so I'm very proud of that. Uh, always interested in animals and weather and just really science-oriented. I found out about aviation uh, when I was in high school and looking at colleges, and I thought that was a really cool thing to do. So I, I, I kind of, my original education path was more education oriented. But with the NOAA Corps and the Hurricane Hunter mission, I found a way to kind of combine my love for aviation and science into one, which is kind of like the perfect job for me. Um, and through an internship, I did my junior year of college uh, with the NOAA Aircraft Operations Center. Uh, I basically learned that, you know, this was the job for me, and uh, it's been awesome ever since. I'm uh, coming up on 10 years in the NOAA Corps, and it's an amazing job. And Kevin is a lieutenant commander, a pilot for the NOAA Corps, and piloted the P-3 aircraft. He has a Bachelor of Science in Aviation Management from Florida Institute of Technology. I want to go over to Rich Henning now, give me give you uh, his background before he answers that question. Rich is NOAA Flight Director and Research Meteorologist since 2009 aboard the NOAA WP-3D and Gulfstream G-4. He's flown over 250 hurricane eyewall penetrations. He's been a meteorologist for the U.S. Air Force from 1998 to 2008, a naval flight officer from 1985 to 1994. 
He has a master's degree in meteorology from Florida State University and a bachelor's degree in geology from Southern Illinois University. Rich, how did you get into weather, first of all, and then how did you become a hurricane hunter? Well, Marshall, uh, when they use the term weather geeks, that most definitely applies to me. Uh, when I was a small child, I actually grew up in the Chicago area. Uh, so it's interesting I end up in hurricanes, uh, but I was always fascinated. I was that kid that would climb up on the top of the roof of our house, uh, much to my mother's uh, horror uh, when she would see me up there. Uh, but I would love to watch thunderstorms 50, 75 miles away somewhere in the Chicago area uh, from the top of our roof. Uh, and then I, I was very fortunate in fifth grade uh, everybody has to re meet the right person at the right time. I had a fantastic science teacher who really challenged me. He nurtured the fascination I had for science. And I knew at that point going forward that I was going to be a scientist of some sort. Uh, I took a really strange path. I did, uh, after I, I got a degree in geology, I never really used it. I joined the Navy and I actually flew off of aircraft carriers. Uh, I have over 200 landings in the back of an E-2 Hawkeye in the Navy. Oh, wow. but when I, yeah, but when I, when I left the Navy, uh, when it was time to decide what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, my first passion has always been meteorology in terms of the sciences. So I went back to school at Florida State and got a graduate degree in meteorology. And during that time, I uh, had been bothering the, um, the Air Force hurricane hunters for a couple of years, and they had finally got a position, and I began flying with them, and I ended up flying with the Air Force hurricane hunters for 14 years. Uh, uh, my, both my brother and my dad were pilots, so I had been very comfortable growing up uh, in and around airplanes, and so... Uh, the ability to fly hurricanes on airplanes kind of combines two loves that I've always had. And then in 2009, I was given the opportunity to join the NOAA Hurricane Hunters uh, based out of Florida. And I jumped on that. And it's been a great job for the last 11 years. And I, I, I always consider this to be almost the top of the food chain when it comes to meteorology opportunities. And Rich, I want to I want to use this opportunity if you can, because I think people may some people may not be aware of the fact that there are two or so or maybe even more sort of operations that fly hurricanes. You mentioned sort of the sort of military version, the Air Force version and then the NOAA version. And actually, I think NASA even flies some hurricanes as well. I, I'm a former NASA scientist. Can you just talk a, briefly about the difference between the two and what the missions are of, say, the NOAA hurricane hunters versus, say, the Air, Air Force? Sure, absolutely. Uh, the Air Force hurricane hunters operate a fleet of 10 C-130 uh, propeller aircraft out of Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And they are the operational uh, folks that go out there uh, on pretty much every storm that uh, will have any kind of a threat towards the U.S. or any U.S. territory. They work directly for the National Hurricane Center, and their mission is strictly operational. What we do at the NOAA Hurricane Hunters is that we not only provide operational support 
for the uh, Hurricane Center, just as the Air Force does. But we also are loaded with a ton of research equipment on our aircraft. The P-3 airplane that we fly into hurricanes is the most heavily instrumented and sophisticated weather research aircraft in the world. And so not only are we gathering data on the storm that we're flying today and helping the forecast today, but the research data that we collect helps in making the forecasts years down the road better. Uh, so that's the biggest difference between the two organizations is that we do an awful lot of research uh, with our flights as well. Now, Kevin, Kevin, you're a pilot, and I know Rich is very uh, um, sort of knowledgeable aircraft as well. Kevin, Rich mentioned the NOAA WP-3D Orions, which, uh, according to my notes, the only aircraft in the nation's Hurricane Hunter fleet equipped with lower fuselage and tail Doppler radar, which I want to talk a little bit more about later. Uh, there are also the WC-130J Super Hercules aircraft, I guess, that are part of the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron. Kevin, what other aircraft are uh, involved in flying hurricanes? I, I know there's a Gulfstream. There's some unmanned uh, aer aerial uh, systems as well. Talk to us about just the fleet of aircraft used to study and diagnose hurricanes. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, like you said, the P-3 is kind of the more well-known, more talked about uh, aircraft in our fleet with NOAA um, that we go straight into the eye of the storm. Um, the Gulfstream is a, a very unique airplane that flies a very, very important mission for the hurricane forecasting and research effort. Um, most people that know anything about aviation think of Gulfstreams as a, a luxury aircraft flying the rich and famous around all over the world. Uh, the Gulfstream is an uh, incredible platform for the mission that we fly, uh, which is a high altitude mission. Uh, and it's primarily used to measure what we like to call the steering currents or those atmospheric properties that will take a storm and push it in one direction or another or feed it energy or dissipate it. Uh, and it's also utilizing a lot of the same tools that we use in the P3, uh, one of which is a, a drop zone, which we can talk more about later. Um, some of the other aircraft in the fleet that we use uh, are, uh, we're experimenting with unmanned aerial systems, um, not to necessarily replace the P3 at this current time, but to supplement the mission and gather additional information. Um, all op uh, not operational at this point, research oriented uh, kind of test and evaluation. Uh, and then we also have, um, I wouldn't necessarily say Hurricane Hunter aircraft, but we do have aircraft in our fleet, um, twin otters, we have four twin otters, a turbo commander and a King Air that uh, can be configured to do post-storm uh, damage assessment and mapping with really, really high powerful cameras. So as soon as the storm will uh, fly over, uh, you know, either a city or some part of the United States, our aircraft can be one of the first ones behind that storm to map it out and provide really, really critical information to the emergency responders on the ground. So, so as a pilot, uh, I, I imagine you have quite a bit of interactions with the meteorologists on board, uh, people like Rich. Um, how valuable are they in terms of mapping out your flight plans and how you're flying through these hurricanes? Give us, give us a little insight into that. Yeah, we, uh, in the flight station, we rely heavily, heavily on the science crew in the back of the aircraft. Uh, Rich, is uh, his position is what we like to call a flight director. They're an in-flight meteorologist. Uh, I like to call them the quarterback of the team. They are the ones that are really uh, making those calls as we're progressing through the storm, both before and in the storm, about how we're going to fly that particular mission. Uh, Rich will sit right behind us in the flight station, um, at his flight director station, and I'll let him talk a little bit more about what he sees there. But he is kind of the link between the scientists in the back of the aircraft who 
uh, have certain objectives and certain patterns they want to fly. Uh, they will bring that information up to Rich. Rich will look at all of his information that he has as a station and determine whether or not it's a safe uh, operation. And then he will present that to us in the flight station and we will execute the plan that uh, Rich and the rest of the science team has come up with. So, uh, it, it, and they're also, you know, one of their biggest things that they'll do is, is basically keep us safe. Uh, they will be able to see certain features on the radar that we won't see out in the front and say, hey, you know, there's an interesting feature in this eye wall. I suggest you come five degrees right. Uh, and that kind of keeps us out of that really nasty stuff. So, yeah, we rely heavily on them in both the pre-flight planning and operationally in flight. And and Rich, that's I, I imagine your role is so vital to not just the safety of the mission, but just collecting the data that we need for diagnosing and pre predicting the hurricanes. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that the P3 has a fuselage radar system, a tail Doppler radar system. And then Kevin also talked about drops on. Can you can you give the Weather Geeks listeners a 101 on why those radars are important and also what drops ons do? Sure, uh, Marshall. The tail Doppler radar is actually a unique capability that the uh, the two NOAA Hurricane Hunter aircraft have. Uh, the uh, the Air Force aircraft, for example, the C-130s do not carry this tail Doppler radar. Essentially, what it does is it cuts vertical slices through the storm. Uh, it's very, very similar to an MRI or a CAT scan in the medical world. Uh, so we cut literally thousands of vertical slices through the storm, and a computer will then assemble them into a three-dimensional picture of the structure of the storm. Not only the, uh, the rain bands, the eyewall, but also the, the motion of the air in the storm. We get a three-dimensional picture of the wind speed and velocities, uh, both horizontal and vertical in the storm. So it's extremely valuable to feed that data into high resolution computer models that can uh, build a, a uh, synthetic picture of the storm. Uh, the lower fuselage radar that we employ uh, scans around 360 degrees horizontally and it uh, not only helps us pick our way through the storm, but it provides really valuable research data afterwards. Along with that tail Doppler radar, that lower fuselage radar is used for research afterwards. And the drop sons that we launch are sort of a, uh, they are an essential aspect to modern aircraft reconnaissance. Uh, regardless of what kind of missions we are flying, uh, just about every project uh, we employ drops on. And what they do is they create a vertical profile of the atmosphere below the airplane. Uh, they're small cylindrical instruments that are ejected out the bottom of the aircraft. They fall by parachute. And if you can imagine what a weather balloon does uh, floating upward, a drop sonde is sort of the opposite of that in that it floats downward. But it measures essentially the same things. It's constantly measuring pressure, temperature, humidity, wind direction, and wind speed. And it's beaming that data back to the aircraft via radio signal. And then what we do is we collect all that data, package it into messages, and send it via satellite to the National Hurricane Center, to the forecasters there, 
and it gets fed directly into the computer models. And that's a, the dropson data is an essential part of what both the G4 high altitude aircraft does and what the P3 does at lower altitudes. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Richard Henning and Kevin Doremus, and they are NOAA hurricane hunters. Now, it, admit it, hurricanes are beautiful. They're awesome from afar. And, and those of us that are weather geeks just are fascinated by them. But these are some of the most dangerous and deadly systems they can be that nature has to offer. Now, both of you flew Hurricane Dorian. And if you don't recall, Hurricane Dorian was an incredible weather event. Uh, it was just very intense, and it sort of sat there over the Bahamas for a, a significant amount of time at a very intense rating. Rich, can you set the stage, just thinking back to Dorian as the meteorologist, set the stage for the, that storm from a meteorological perspective? Perspective, And then, Kevin, I'm, I want to get your thoughts on your thoughts as the pilot flying one of these storms, flying into them, and what are some of your more dangerous moments? So, Rich, set the stage for Dorian for us. Well, one of the most fascinating things about hurricanes is that the more deadly and destructive a storm is, you're talking the Category 4, Category 5 hurricanes, those are the ones that end up having the most beautifully formed eyes. Uh, it's, it's a very distinct phenomenon of nature. And it's because uh, the old expression, what goes up must come down. And that's very true in meteorology. In the very intense category five type hurricanes, you got a tremendous amount of air going up in the eye wall, all the way up to 45, 50, 55,000 feet into the atmosphere, all the way up to the stratosphere. And that air actually comes back down and sinks down to the ocean surface in the eye. So you have a tremendous amount of sinking air in the eye, and it's that sinking motion that essentially wrings the moisture out of the atmosphere and completely dries out the eye. So uh, the stronger the upward motion is in the eye wall in those intense storms, the stronger the downward motion is gonna be in the eye and the more it's going to be clear and beautiful and well-defined. Uh, so most storms that we fly are kind of messy. If we're trying flying a tropical storm or maybe a Category 1 hurricane, uh, the view inside the center to a lot of people would be kind of underwhelming. It's not what they would expect. But in those Cat 4, Cat 5 hurricanes, those are the ones that are the real eye catchers. And, and Kevin, were you, I know, Rich, I think you were in the storm Dorian at max intensity. Were you flying uh, Dorian as well, uh, Kevin? Yes, sir. I flew Dorian from uh, inception as a tropical depression to tropical storm, cat one, two, three, four, five, and back down to cat two. 
Oh wow! Um, you were all all over it then. Um, it was yeah. It was a it was a pretty intense effort from everybody involved. Yeah. What? And again, I you know. And by the way, our producers shout out to Sarah Dillingham and Heather Zons and the folks that and others actually Carl Keitel and Josh Vexler and others that make this podcast happen. But our producers snuck a little note in there saying they uh, when's the next time they can join one of your missions. But the host of Weather Geeks. Dr. Shepard's going to pass, <laughs> but, but um, just getting back to this, I, you know, I've heard and I've, I've talked to people. I had I talked to people that have flown these storms. Um, is it as bad as people think it is, or is it actually there? Are there some, some surprising elements, uh, Kevin, to flying a storm like Dorian in terms of how turbulent people might think it is, et cetera? Absolutely. And, and Dorian is kind of the perfect example uh, in that every storm is different and every storm has its own, you know, I like to call it personality. Uh, the tropical depressions, the tropical storms, they tend to be kind of some of our more challenging flights, believe it or not. Uh, like Rich said, they're very disorganized. Uh, a lot of times we're not, we don't have a lot of information on the storm prior to getting out there. There's a lot of pop-up thunderstorms uh, that we have to dodge and weave around. Um, so a lot of times those tropical storms, uh, and tropical depressions can be some of our worst and uh, as far as turbulence goes and our more, more challenging flights. Um, you know, Dorian, as it was intensifying uh, from a Cat 1 to a Cat 5, uh, it was definitely, uh, I think one of our meteorologists like to call it sporty plus, uh, where, you know, the turbulence is, is, can be pretty intense at times. You know, obviously the entire storm isn't turbulent. Usually that heavy turbulence is associated with the eye wall. Um, but, uh, you know, as it went up, you know, it was, it was crazy. And then uh, as the storm was dying down, when we were flying it, I think it was off the coast of North Carolina, it was a Cat 3 diminishing to a Cat 2. And you could get up and walk up and down the airplane as you're passing through the eye wall uh, because the storm just lost so much of its energy. So every flight is different. Every storm is different. You know, we, uh, we have some really smart people, uh, meteorologists that, you know, in our pre-flight briefing, like to give us kind of a heads up, like, hey, this is what to expect. But a lot of times when you get out there, you know, you just don't know. What 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 scares you the most uh, in, in, in flights over the years? Uh, so it's, it's a challenging environment to fly in, for sure. Uh, we take a lot of precaution and we do a lot of pre-planning, pre-season planning, uh, risk mitigation to kind of try to identify all the risks prior to starting hurricane operations. So uh, I fly with a, a group of incredible men and women who've been doing this for a very long time uh, that have a lot of really uh, great experience. And a, a lot of the stuff, you know, you don't go to school on how to fly into a hurricane. It's a lot of on-the-job training. Um, you know, some of my, my big concerns are, uh, you know, if, if something were to go wrong in the storm environment with the aircraft, let's say, um, you know, there's not a lot of outs. Uh, luckily, we do a lot of training uh, in the front of the aircraft for the pilots and the, uh, the operators of the aircraft. We do a lot of training to handle those situations. So, you know, we have four engines. If you lose one engine, we have a procedure for that. If you lose two engines, we have a procedure for that. If you have a fire on board, we have a procedure for that. So uh, I feel very confident going into the storm that we are well equipped uh, to handle anything that comes at us. Now, Rich, again, you've been doing this for a while from NOAA's perspective and uh, from the military perspective. Walk us through what a typical deployment is like. I mean, once you get the word you're going, I mean, wh what happens in the next 24 hours over that time frame? Well, uh, Marshall, a lot of it depends on where the storm is. Uh, if there is a depression, for example, gathering strength out in the center of the Atlantic, 
and the computer models forecast it to be ultimately a threat to the US, uh, we will actually take our G4 aircraft and our P3 down to a forward operating location in the Caribbean. We like to work out of uh, two different areas. Uh, we have a forward location in Barbados, uh, which is uh, about as far east as you can go in the Caribbean, uh, way down in the Windward Islands, uh, in order to get closer to the storm. Uh, and if uh, we don't have to go all the way down to Barbados, we typically will fly Atlantic hurricanes out of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So one of those two locations is selected, and we essentially have to uh, shuttle down there. Uh, and then it's uh, a matter of logistics at that point. We have to check into a hotel. We have to operate out of uh, sometimes an austere location at, a, at an air base somewhere where we have to improvise our procedures that we're used to doing in Lakeland. Uh, but whether we fly out of Lakeland, Florida, or down in the Caribbean, we do follow sort of the same pattern where uh, we show up about three hours um, prior to takeoff and assemble as a crew and begin preparing for a briefing. And we do a briefing as a crew uh, two hours prior to takeoff and then head out to the aircraft and this is where our engineers and technicians are such a key part of our job in that they're already out at the aircraft powering up all those science uh, instruments that we need to fly. It takes a long time to get them all working, get them calibrated, get them all right. And then we will brief as a crew uh, in the back of the aircraft, uh, generally about a half hour, 35 minutes before takeoff, and then start the engines and head off for our mission. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking with two of NOAA's hurricane hunters. And we're talking all about their roles, their sort of concerns, their interests, and obviously their passion for what they do, because this is not something you just decide, oh, I think I'm going to go apply to be a hurricane hunter. You've got to have a certain amount of expertise and a certain amount of passion to do this. I want to talk now about something that, you know, one of our producers wanted me to ask, and I, I actually, I guess I wasn't aware that this didn't exist, but I'm, I'm just going to read what, what she wrote and you can re respond to it. It says, uh, if SpaceX can give us live cameras of launches into space, how are there not live feeds from the planes yet? Are there limitations and security issues? Now, I'm not familiar with, with this at all or this question. So uh, either one of you want to take that one? Yeah, I'll well, take this one, Dr. Shepard. Um, so uh, that's, a, that's a really great point. Um, I, I will say that we kind of sort of have a live feed, uh, but that live feed is not what uh, the viewers on SpaceX are going to see. It's data. It's data flowing off the aircraft in real time via satellite uh, that is going to our partners at the Hurricane Center 
that is uh, seeing information as it comes off the airplane in near real time so that they can ingest that information into the models and get a really accurate forecast very quickly. Um, as far as kind of the video aspect of it, um, you know, obviously technical limitations with weather and rain. Um, I do know that our public affairs department is looking into it uh, at this time because I think that would be really cool. But uh, as far as the live video feed at that time, that's not something that we're capable of doing. And did you want to add something to that? Uh, no, Marshall. Uh, again, it's something that our public affairs uh, folks are definitely looking at. Uh, one of the limitations that Kevin mentioned was the bandwidth that we have uh, coming off the airplane. Uh, we're actually lucky. We do have a really high quality uh, signal that we can send through the satellites, but that data path is almost entirely full right now. Uh, because not only are we transmitting off things like temperature and wind and humidity off the airplane, but we're also sending that tail Doppler radar off of the aircraft in real time to get assimilated into those high-resolution computer models. And that just takes up a lot of uh, megabytes of, of data. So uh, that's the biggest constraint right now is the bandwidth uh, to our satellite. Yeah, I, 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 I suspected that would be the case. And I, I'm not surprised that my, my more media-focused colleagues on the team would be interested in having that kind of information, given, given what our good friends at the, the Weather Channel do. Is there something that really just sticks out as a really memorable moment in one of your, in one of your storms? Well, probably the most poignant moment I've ever had in my career flying hurricanes uh, was back in 2005 flying Hurricane Katrina. And um, the crew that I was on, we were literally the first people in the world who knew that Katrina had rapidly intensified into a Category 5 storm. We had flown that storm for many hours. We knew how severe it was. And the pilots had dialed up a radio station in New Orleans on what they call their ADF system, which is a, an old-fashioned old navigation system that's hardly ever used, but you can pick up AM radio on it. And they told us to listen in because there was a priest uh, on a radio station in New Orleans that was saying a prayer for the city and the surrounding area. And oh, it, wow. was a, uh, it was early on a Sunday morning uh, we had flown the mission in the pre-dawn hours of Sunday, so literally the area was waking up to a Category 5 storm heading in their direction, and I feel like the data that we provided uh, with these people waking up and being shocked to find a Cat 5 and having uh, a priest praying on the radio uh, spurred literally tens of thousands of people to evacuate the Louisiana and Mississippi coasts. And I think that led directly to thousands of lives being saved. And I, I think people don't realize that what you all do, and you, you, you literally risk your lives for the sake of lives of others. So on behalf of everyone, I want to thank you both for that. Uh, Kevin, what about you? Any, any particularly memorable moments? You know, I'm going to say there's basically two that, uh, that I'll talk, to, talk about. The, uh, the first one, is uh, actually not a hurricane-related mission. Um, a lot of people don't know that when we're not flying hurricanes, uh, we support a number of different uh, scientific research flights all around the world. Uh, the more memorable one for me was a, a tornado research project that we do in the Midwest uh, in the summertime. 
uh, where we're basically flying in front of these uh, massive supercells, basically looking for tornadoes. Uh, you know, there's, you'd be flying, look out the right window, like, oh, there's a tornado, like, right there. It's definitely a scary environment to fly in. Um, the most memorable one is we used to do, or we still do, is flying at night. And I was a pretty new pilot at the time in the P3, and we're flying in between these two cells that are just blowing up, and the lightning is so bad, it's like a strobe light that's going off, that I had to basically put my head up against the windscreen of the airplane and just focus on my instruments because my night vision was getting uh, killed with all the lightning. I just remember thinking, like, what am I doing out here? Like, this is crazy. But in the end, you know, obviously we did it safely and got home, no problems. It was just one of those eye-opening moments where, uh, you know, we do some very unique flying in uh, environments that pretty much no other pilot would want to find themselves in. Um, so that was one. And then uh, Dorian, the whole kind of series of Dorian was really mem memorable for me personally um, in that my wife was uh, very pregnant at the time. I think when it was a Cat 5, we were about five days away from our due date. Uh, so every flight was exciting. Um, and, you know, there's definitely just this little added layer there of anxiety being like, well, I hope uh, when I land, my wife's not in the hospital giving birth to my first child. So <laughs> that, that just made it kind of a, a unique series for me and something that I'll, I will definitely remember. And luckily, I, I was there. I made it for the birth of the baby and, and all is good. But it was definitely uh, definitely memorable in that case. And I want to thank you for sort of making note of the fact that you all do fly missions that aren't hurricane related, because I knew that, but I think a lot of people may not know that about the hurricane hunters. And I, yeah, I can imagine flying an environment in the near environment of a tornado or a supercell thunderstorm has its own unique challenges, as scary as perhaps it sounds flying in a hurricane. Uh, final question, and I want each of you to address this, and I'll start with uh, what advice would you give to an aspiring hurricane hunter, whether it's a meteorologist on board or one piloting the aircraft? So we'll we'll start with Kevin. So um, I'll talk about kind of my side of the house, which is the operational aviation pilot side. Uh, we are part, or at least the pilots and our navigators and some of our other crew members are part of a, a branch of the uniform services called the NOAA Corps. Uh, I used to call it the seventh small service, but I think I have to call it the eighth small service now that we have the Space Force. Uh, but we are a, a small uh, uniform service that is very scientifically driven, and we are the operational specialists for NOAA. So we are the pilots, we are the navigators, and then NOAA also has a fleet of uh, research vessels that go all over the world, and NOAA Corps officers are the one operating those research vessels. So in order to become a NOAA Corps officer, uh, number one, you need to have a uh, college degree in science, math, or engineering, or a field that pertains to NOAA's mission. And once you have that degree, uh, you can apply for the NOAA Corps. And the way that it works is if you get accepted, you know, we're looking for people that uh, obviously have the science degrees, but we're also looking for people that are leaders, uh, you know, the captains of their soccer teams or the, you know, the leaders in their local band or their communities, things like that. Um, because, you know, not only do we fly, but we also hold uh, leadership positions throughout the organization. Uh, but once you apply, if you get accepted, you go through officer candidate school, or we call it BOTSI, inside the Coast Guard Academy. They teach you to be an officer. They teach you how to wear a uniform. And upon graduation from BOTSI, they will assign you to either aircraft uh, or boats. Uh, so if the one thing I can say to people out there that want to be a pilot for the Hurricane Hunters, you know, focus heavily on those science classes, do well in school, get good grades, be a leader in your community and your organizations. And um, we have a great website. If you just Google the NOAA Corps, there's a lot of awesome information on there, and we're always looking for more people. Yeah, and Ken, uh, what about you, Rich? What advice would you add to that excellent advice from Kevin? 
Well, I would say that um, uh, there's actually two ways in terms of science and technology that you could get into a hurricane in the back of the aircraft. Uh, one is as a meteorologist and another is as an engineer. Uh, and they're uh, equally rewarding. In terms of a meteorology degree, be a flight director, which is my job, the, uh, the flight meteorologist on board the plane. So you'd have to get yourself a four-year atmospheric science or meteorology degree. But what I really want to stress to any of the kids that are out there is that if you are in grade school right now or middle school, nobody ever told me this when I was a kid, and I wish someone had told me, take as much math as you possibly can in high school so that the math isn't so difficult by the time you get to college because it makes a huge difference. So that would be my biggest piece of advice for the younger kids out there. And the other thing I, I pointed out was that you could either be a meteorologist or an engineer. We have several positions uh, at AOC, the Aircraft Operations Center, that are aerospace engineers who do a lot of very fascinating work on the ground, getting us ready for these missions, but then they also fly as part of the crew. And in fact, we have a, uh, a young engineer who applied to be an astronaut, and he made it to the third round of astronaut selection, which is very difficult. And one of the pieces of advice he was given by an astronaut uh, moving forward was get yourself out from behind a desk. Go out into the field and do something in, in science uh, that is, you know, and, and so he ended up with the Hurricane Hunters, which I think is <laughs> a perfect example of what that astronaut was talking about. Uh, so that's really my advice is uh, to, uh, to any kids, uh, both meteorology and engineering are excellent ways to, to get on board our airplane. Uh, excellent advice, and that's where I'm going to have to end it today. But before we do, it's that time of the podcast where we highlight the Geek of the Week. This episode's Geek of the Week is Sarah Converse, who is a weekend meteorologist from WICS in Illinois. Sarah is an FSU alum, and for this episode, it is only fitting that her favorite kind of weather is, you guessed it, hurricanes. She's always got her eye on the tropics, checking the National Hurricane Center for any new areas of development. And when there is a tropical cyclone, she loves to analyze the latest data streaming from the hurricane hunters. Even living in landlocked Illinois, where Rich grew up, she's keeping her passion for the tropics alive and well. For more updates from Sarah, be sure to follow her on Twitter at WX underscore converse that's at wx underscore converse now if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for the next week of the week check out our social media pages and i don't know what that was but maybe they are applying for geek of the week too rich and kevin thank you so much for joining us on the weather geeks podcast thanks very much Shepard. thank you very much marshall excellent discussion and i'm dr marshall Shepard from the university of georgia see you next time on weather geeks <laughs>